Welcome to Riders Report, the podcast. See you later! Oh, baby! And the Riders win! Now, here's your host, Zach Bigley. Hello and welcome to Season 2 of Riders Report, the podcast. This is Episode 1. My name is Zach Bigley, the broadcaster for the Rough Riders, and we are very happy to have you along. The season and our April 8th opening day, it just keeps drawing closer and closer, and we are so excited to have you out here at Riders Field this year. In this episode, we are focusing on one of the things we are most excited about, and that's that the Rough Riders will be donning the moniker the Dallas Black Giants to honor the former Negro Leagues team that played just south of downtown Dallas in the mid-1900s. First, we'll take a look back at some of the great players who played for the Black Giants and give a brief history of the Negro Leagues and how the Black Giants fit into that picture. Lastly, we'll have a wonderful conversation with Bob Kendrick, the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, who will be on hand at Riders Field the first night the Rough Riders will become the Black Giants on Juneteenth. That's June 19th this year. Trust me, you don't want to miss this interview. He has incredibly insightful and amazing stories about the Negro Leagues and the Black Giants, and he is just a wonderful human being. We were so so happy that he gave us some time a few weeks ago. The Riders will play as the Black Giants over three games this season on June 19th, as mentioned, August 14th, and September 7th. And tickets are on sale for those dates and for every date throughout the season. So make sure you get them now at ridersbaseball.com. Without further ado, we are so excited to get into this episode. So let's get going on our episode about the Dallas Black Giants. The Dallas Black Giants had some incredible players don their uniforms in the early to mid-1900s. Here are four notable players to keep in your mind as we see the Rough Riders wear similar uniforms during the 2022 season. Where should we start? No better place than Ernie Banks. Not only is Banks the most well-known player who wore a Dallas Black Giants uniform, but Mr. Cub is one of the best shortstops in the history of baseball. The two-time Major League Baseball MVP and the 14-time All-Star broke into semi-pro baseball at the tender age of 17 with the Black Giants in 1948. He was so impressive that he caught the eye of Negro League's legend Cool Papa Bell, who was the manager and scout for a farm team of the Kansas City Monarchs, the most legendary of all Negro League's baseball teams. Bell then introduced the Young Banks to another legendary figure, Baseball Hall of Famer Buck O'Neill, the player manager for the Monarchs, who immediately took Banks under his wing. Following three seasons with the Monarchs, Banks debuted with the Cubs in 1953 as a 22-year-old and went on to play 19 seasons, all in Chicago, accumulating 512 home runs and a 67.7 war on his way to be voted into the Hall of Fame in 1977. Make sure you stick around for the interview as well with Bob Kendrick later because he has some amazing stories about Ernie Banks. He was truly one of the most important players in black baseball during the 1950s and 60s. Our next player is the great William Skinny Legs Blair. While Blair was a force on the mound as a manager and pitcher during his years with the Black Giants and his one season in the Negro Leagues, he became most well-known for his work outside of baseball. After going to Booker T. Washington High School in Dallas, the same high school Ernie Banks went to, Blair went on to be the youngest black sergeant to serve in the Army in 1945 during World War II. Following his baseball career, Blair was a key piece in the Dallas Civil Rights Movement for 50 years, organizing the first local media awards for African Americans in 1975, the Elite News Awards Ceremony, as well as the first Dallas Martin Luther King Jr. Parade in 1986. Blair passed away in 2014, but he has a park in South Dallas named after him. James Raleigh Biz Mackey, who would soon be known as one of the best defensive catchers in the history of baseball, is our next player and grew up in Caldwell County, just south of Austin, Texas. 
While there is some speculation as to whether or not he actually played for the Black Giants in 1918 and 1919, as newspapers referred to him as Riley McKee, who was believed to be biz, there is no doubt he was a mammoth in the history of the Negro Leagues. Mackey went on to win two Negro Leagues World Series titles, a batting title hitting 423 in 1923 with Hillsdale, and was voted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame in 2006. Mackey was so talented behind the plate that some writers of his time actually picked him to be their catcher on the All-Negro Leagues team over the incredible Josh Gibson, who is said to be the Babe Ruth of black baseball. Our final player to highlight is Andy Cooper, a Waco, Texas native. Cooper was a pitcher best known for his immaculate control with the Detroit Stars and Kansas City Monarchs of the Negro National League and Negro American League in the 1920s and 1930s. After he started with the Black Giants in 1919, Cooper once went 43 consecutive innings without walking a batter in Negro Leagues play. He was named as the best pitcher in the Negro Leagues during the 1923 season by famed statistician Bill James. Known for his ability to change speeds and throw a variety of pitches, Cooper made the all-star team at the age of 40, and he won Negro League American League pennants in 1937, 1939, and 1940 before passing away in the spring of 1941 at the age of 45. The man nicknamed Lefty was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 2006. As you might have noticed, almost all of those players we highlighted started their careers with the Black Giants and went on to have major success with big-name clubs in the Negro Leagues. This was quite common with the Black Giants because they were almost equivalent to an independent league or semi-pro team in today's terms. Known as a barnstorming team, the Black Giants were one of many teams across the country that would travel from town to town playing exhibition and entertainment-centric games in predominantly black communities. As you'll hear in our interview later with Bob Kendrick, these teams were instrumental in their communities as entertainment, a deeper look into the sport, and ultimately a way for the community to come together during a time of racial segregation and heinous racism. The Negro Leagues most people knew were the Negro National League and the Negro American League, consisting of famous teams such as the Kansas City Monarchs, the Indianapolis ABCs, the St. Louis Stars, the Homestead Grays, and many more. Stars were everywhere in the Negro Leagues. The great writer Joe Posnanski of The Athletic highlighted some wonderful bits about a few of them. His players included Satchel Paige, who was said to throw so hard that his catcher put a raw steak in his glove to cushion the blow. It was a hamburger by the fifth inning of the game. The powerful Josh Gibson, who is one of the greatest catchers of any race to ever play, it was said that Josh Gibson hit a ball so high and so far in Pittsburgh that it didn't come down until the next day when the team was in Philadelphia. Cool Papa Bell was so fast that he hit a line drive to center and was hit by the ball as he slid into second, and Sam the Jet Jethro was faster than the word of God. These were fast-paced, exciting games that were must-see baseball at the time. The game was so much more station-to-station in the major leagues at the time. Steals, uh, aggressive base running, risk-taking were everywhere in the Negro Leagues. It was a much different style of play. It wasn't until Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in 1947 that the Negro Leagues started to fade, and with it, that style started to make its way into the major leagues. We talked about that and much more in our interview with the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, Bob Kendrick, who was kind enough to give us a large chunk of his time. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Bob Kendrick. We are very happy to be joined today by Bob Kendrick. He's the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City. Bob, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. 
Now, this is such an incredible year coming up in Major League Baseball and in Minor League Baseball when it comes to the history of the Negro Leagues and Black Baseball in general. And I wanted to start it out with something that was just announced by Minor League Baseball, which is the program called The Nine, which is a program that is trying to include more Black uh, players in the history and also get uh, kind of the Black community more excited about baseball and get them out. And I was wondering uh, how how impressed are you with it and how important is that uh, when it comes to this? to this season coming up very exciting uh very exciting i absolutely commend my friends over at minor league baseball for coming up with this initiative because we've all been involved in trying to make a concerted effort to find avenues for urban kids to play our game but i'm not sure we've been quite as focused as we should on getting black fans back into the game making them feel welcomed again And so this initiative is really important, particularly to all of us here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. In minor league baseball, of course, there's the nine. And then also the Frisco Rough Riders are having their tribute to the Dallas Black Giants, which is going to be so much fun this year. And uh, we're really looking forward to it. But the history of black baseball in Texas is just incredible. And we'll talk about a few players in particular. But just from from your research and your time, how important is Texas in particular to the history of black baseball in this country? Oh, it's just tremendously important. And you just touched on and kind of gleaned a little bit in terms of so many tremendous players who came out of Texas. And and while Texas didn't have as many teams that were part of the, what we would call the formal organized Negro Leagues, it still had a pertinent role within the Negro Leagues. And, And so for me, I always get excited when all of the communities around the country celebrate their black baseball roots. And and you'll be hard pressed to find any area of this country that doesn't have some modem of black baseball history to it. And and anytime that we're celebrating that, that is a great thing. But in the case of Texas, and now in particular the case of Dallas with the work that you guys are doing to to remember the the great Dallas black giants and, and what that team meant to that area, you know, that's something that it also makes me smile, man. It brings a smile to my face uh, because it makes me think about some of the guys who I knew that were part of that Dallas Giants team at one point in time, namely two particular players, the late great William Bill Skinny Legs Blair, and, and of course, perhaps the greatest baseball player to ever come out of Dallas, the legendary Ernie Banks. Yeah, Ernie Banks, we'll certainly get to him because there's a lot of stuff to talk about with one of the greatest shortstop shortstops in the history of baseball. But you mentioned that while there weren't a lot of teams in Texas that necessarily fit into the Negro Leagues, as you know, you think of the famous teams like the Kansas City Monarchs, of course, mm-hmm. in Kansas City. But how how important were these barnstorming teams to their communities and, and to their areas? Because they weren't part of the big leagues, but they were still great entertaining yeah. baseball. Oh, absolutely. And fans flocked to see those games. So they played a vital role within the African-American community and in each of those communities where you had either these professional black teams or semi-pro black teams. And a lot of those semi-pro black teams are only semi-pro by name. And these teams were outstanding. And, And so virtually every community around this country was impacted some way or another by black baseball. And it brought a level of joy and excitement to African-American communities across this country. 
and they were flocking to see those games. And, and that's why the spirit of what is being done in the minor leagues now with this new initiative is so vitally important because it is opening up the opportunity to welcome black fans or make them feel welcomed back in the, in the stadiums. And whenever we do that, that is good for our sport that every sector of our population feels like they are part of our great sport because they are a part of our great sport. And they have been for a long time. And I think that something that in our research has been so much fun to see is people who don't really know a lot about the Negro Leagues, they don't understand that these games were a spectacle. You're talking, <laughs> you know, in Dallas Black Giants, over 11,000 people with a uh, live jazz band and dancing and everything beauty going on. pageants. Yeah, you know, they had, pageants. The, they had the beauty pageants. You know, you name it, it was there because they were outstanding at marketing their product. And honestly, I, I tell my friends on Major League Baseball all the time, they really could take a page from the Negro Leagues <laughs> in, in terms of its ability to market its product. It was a star-driven league. They were never afraid to market their stars. And, and, and it reminds me of the fact that the thing that we love about baseball is its tradition. It's a very tradition-rich sport. The thing that has hurt baseball is its tradition. And, and so the other sports have simply outmarketed us, but the Negro Leagues understood the marketing value of this. And they came up with all these avenues to get fans into the ballpark. And you're right, the music and everything that was associated with it made it a spectacle. And, 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 and I wish we'd see some of that come back to our game. We do an event here in Kansas City called Dress to the Nines. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I tell people all the time, every now and then an idea comes along, you wish it was your idea. And, and 20 years later, Zach, I'll swear, I'll lie and swear it was my idea, but it wasn't my idea. Two young white kids approached me, oh God, this must have been nine, 10 years ago now, about a notion of saying, Mr. Kendrick, what do you think about trying to get fans to dress up and go to a game the way they used to go to Monarch games, and we want to call it Dress to the Nines. And the first words that came out of my mouth, damn, how come I didn't think of that? <laughs> it was <laughs> it was absolutely brilliant. And so the first year that we did this, we didn't have a whole lot of time to market. We just did a social media campaign, and we must have gotten 300 people. We all gathered out at a space in, in the cave called Rivals, and everybody's dressed up. And you can see people looking like, why are these folks dressed up? And But the Royals caught wind of what we were doing. And so it was too quick for them to get involved in year one, but the second year they did get involved and then they added promotional muscle to it. And now we get thousands of people to put on their Sunday best and come out to the ballpark like fans used to yesteryear where so oftentimes Negro League games were played on Sundays and, and then we would leave church, literally leave church, going straight to the ballpark, dressed to the nines. You know, but we want to make the game engaging again for the fans, interesting for the fans. The style of play made it interesting and engaging. It was just a different brand of baseball. The pace of the game was fast aggressive, daring. So you were seeing things that were completely different than Major League Baseball. 
Uh, Major League Baseball back in that era was essentially a base-to-base -base kind of game. So a guy got on base, you moved him over to second, the big hitters would then come up and drive him in. Nothing wrong with that. But in the Negro Leagues, they're going to drop that bunt, get on first base any way that they could. Then they're going to steal second. They were going to steal third. And man, if you weren't too smart, they were stealing home. And, and <laughs> my dear friend, my dear friend, the late great Buck O'Neill would say, well, the major leaguers would so oftentimes accuse us of showboating. You know, guy go in the hole, flip the ball behind his back, start the double play. Well, today that is a sports center top 10 highlight every night of the week. As Buck would say, number one, Zach, if you've got something to show, show it. Don't be afraid to show it, show it. And then he would also go on to say, it's only showboating when you can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. Oh, man. I mean, as, as you know, uh, having been around him for so many years, Buck O'Neill is just a, a walking quote machine, it seems like. I mean, his uh, Joe Posnanski's book on him is, is fantastic. And, yeah, it's amazing. And yeah. it, it, it should be must read for every high school student in the country. Uh, and the book that we're refer referencing is uh, The Soul of Baseball, A Road Trip Through Buck O'Neill's America. Please pick it up. It will inspire you. It will enlighten you. Uh, and you'll be just like the rest of us. You'll fall even deeper in love with the late great Buck O'Neill. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention how thrilled I am that at long last, he has been voted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. He gets now time. to take his place amongst the immortals of this game, even though it's 15 years late. You know, he died uh, almost 16 years ago now since the calendar has turned, but it doesn't diminish the impact and it doesn't diminish the significance of the accomplishment uh, for Buck O'Neill. So God willing, I'll be there in Cooperstown in July uh, as we celebrate the legacy of the late, great Buck O'Neill. A man without hate for any people. I, no, he's just no. absolutely wonderful. No. Uh, and another absolutely wonderful character who you know very well came up as a 17-year-old with the Dallas Black Giants. And he was very little known at the time until Cool Papa Bell found him out and, uh, and brought him <laughs> to play with the Kansas City Monarchs in 1950. And that's Ernie Banks, who is a yes. 500 home run guy, Hall of Famer, one of the greatest shortstops of all time. When you hear Ernie Banks and in, in the Negro Leagues, especially, what really comes to mind first? Number one, a smile. Yeah, if, if for those of you who did not know Buck O'Neill, but you knew Ernie Banks, then you knew Buck O'Neill. <laughs> yeah, you knew Buck O'Neill. Buck was Ernie's surrogate father. And he probably had as much influence on Ernie as anyone. Buck O'Neill taught him social graces. Buck would say, Ernie would say that Buck taught, taught him baseball, but Buck would say he didn't teach Ernie how to play baseball. Ernie Banks knew how to play baseball. He may have taught Ernie Banks how to love baseball. Uh -huh. And Buck's diligence to work with Ernie every single day was one of the things that Ernie talked about was part of the sheer joy that he had. Buck would hit him ground ball after ground ball for hours on end. And uh, this kid from Dallas, Texas, would come to Kansas City to join the Kansas City Monarchs. You mentioned Cool Papa Bell. Cool Papa Bell was managing what they called the Junior Monarchs. And they're playing in Dallas, Texas, when he sees this kid playing for the Dallas Black Giants named Ernest Banks. And 
cool Papa Bell calls Buck and says, Buck, I think I got one for you. And, and Buck said, can he pick it? Cool said, yeah, he can pick it. And cool Papa Bell and Bill Blair. Bill Blair would buy Ernie Banks two suits, put him on a train, and sent him to Kansas City, where he would come join the great Kansas City Monarchs. Ernie and Buck would, would create this bond that lasted a lifetime. And when the Cubs signed Ernie and Buck orchestrated the move for Ernie to go to Chicago, Ernie did not want to leave. He didn't want to go. They had to literally push Ernie out the door. And, and it's like he was afraid. He was afraid of the isolation that he was going to have to endure. In Kansas City, he was part of something more than just baseball. He was part of a community. He was part of a culture. And, and so when the Monarchs played, then they're all going to go home, get cleaned up. Then they're going to meet. They're going to go have dinner. They're going to go to the restaurant. They're going to listen to jazz. He knew that the minute he left to go to Chicago, he's going to be isolated. Yeah, his teammates after the game left and went back to their world. He and Gene Baker. Gene Baker, they formed this, the first black double play combination. Both had played for the Kansas City Monarchs. Both had played for Buck O'Neill. They were isolated on the south side of Chicago where black folks could stay there. And, and so they literally had to push him out. But they said, Ernie, you have to go. You have to go so that another will get the opportunity. Uh-huh. But Every time that Ernie Banks walked into the room, the room lit up, man. The room just lit up. And I have so many fond memories of him just calling me in my office. Call me. Now, they'll tell me Ernie Banks is on the phone. And, and you know, I'm saying to myself, well, this is pretty doggone special. This work that you're doing. And then when Ernie Banks calls you, you know, and he just wanted to know how you were doing, how your family was doing, and he was always so loyal and committed to his Negro League roots. And, uh, you know, those years that we spent with him, man, was just always incredible. They were so enjoyable. They were so enlightening. He had such a, an amazing spirit about him. And, and it was all Buck O'Neill. That's amazing. Yeah. Ernie Banks is one of those guys who sticks out in baseball history. But in addition to that, he was really one of the last big stars to come out of the Negro Leagues before integration fully took form. And, and you know, Major League Baseball kind of took over from that point. How important do you think it was for Ernie Banks to kind of represent the Negro Leagues for most of the 60s and 70s because he was one of the last big stars to come out? Yeah, no, no, it was important. It was important for him. It was important for Willie Mays. It was important for Henry Aaron. It, it was important for Roy Campanella. It was important for all of those guys because when they left the Negro Leagues and transitioned into Major League Baseball, they were taking the Negro Leagues with them. And, and while it was too late for some of the older Negro League players, they were past their prime, unfortunately that older Negro Leagues player nurtured that young budding star in the Negro Leagues because they knew they had a chance to get there. Once Jackie breaks the color barrier and now integration is in place, they knew that that young Ernie Banks would have a chance. I don't know if you knew that Ernie Banks and the great Elston Howard were roommates when they were here for the Kansas City Monarch. Really? And Ernie used to say, Ernie talked about how he and Ellie 
would stay up at night and they would both talk about dreaming of getting to the show because they knew now that they had an opportunity. They knew. And which one would get there first? As, as we know, Ernie would get there first. Ellie would become the first Black Yankee. Yeah, he would lead the Monarchs to become a member of the New York Yankees, the first Black player with the New York Yankees. And, and so, yeah, it meant a lot to them. And every one of those young Negro League stars will tell you that had it not been for that older player in the Negro Leagues that nurtured them, and in many instances protected them, because these are, you, you talk about it. Ernie's 18 years old when he gets here. You know, Willie Mays was 17 years old. Henry Aaron was 18 years old, and they're playing against grown men. And they're playing at a time when traveling the highways and byways of our country, this was challenging for Black folks. And so, yeah, that older player took care of them. And so when they did get their opportunity, they took them with them and they were well prepared to deal with whatever Major League Baseball was going to throw at them because of what they had endured and had, had learned from that older player in the Negro Leagues. They, they were prepared. Yeah, they had what I call the survival skills in place. Yeah, it would, sometimes I wonder what it would have been like if they could have just merely focused on playing baseball. Now, because when you start talking about Willie Mays, Henry Aaron, Ernie Banks, you're talking about three of the greatest baseball players to ever put on a baseball uniform. Mm -hmm. And they couldn't just focus on their craft because they were dealing with some extreme circumstances away from the ballpark that really no major leaguer and uh, well, no white major leaguer would ever have to deal with. And, and so it just wondered how great they were. But man, how much better they could have been if they just could focus solely on baseball. You know, and, and so it, it's amazing to me how all of these players who transitioned were able to be so successful under such extreme social circumstances. It really was just incredible. I have uh, I have one fun question for you and then one last one to wrap it up. But one of my favorite things about reading about the Negro Leagues is the writers of the time were so creative. And uh, some of the, I guess, Negro Leagues isms where, you know, cool Papa Bell would, uh, would turn off the light. He was in the bed before the room was dark and trying to sneak a fastball by Josh Gibson was like trying to sneak a sunrise past a rooster. Do you have, <laughs> do you have any, a favorite, Negro Leagues ism that you've heard? Well, that, that you just mentioned two, two of my favorites, uh, but one for the late, great Ray Dandridge, who had big, wide bow legs. And the, his own teammates used to tease him that his legs were so bold that you could drive a train between his legs, <laughs> but a baseball would never get between them. He could <laughs> flat out pick it, one of the greatest third basements of all time, they called him Squatty because his legs were so bold. But, you know, you're right. That was the beauty of baseball. That's the excitement, the energy, the charisma that made Negro Leagues baseball such a fan favorite, you know, uh, to compare cool Papa Bell speed to a light switch. You know, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I do a podcast with Sirius XM Radio called Black Diamonds, and we did an episode 
on the legendary cool Papa Bell, and the episode was called Faster Than a Light Switch. Oh, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Uh, You've been so gracious with your time. One final question before we get you out of here. This is obviously something we're so excited to do to, to represent the Negro Leagues. And I just wanted to know, keeping the spirit alive is something we've talked about a lot and something you've talked about a lot. How important are these games and just making sure we can get people out here to learn about the Negro Leagues uh, as we go forward, not only this season, but going forward in baseball history? Oh, it, it's extremely important. And it fits right in line with what the Negro League Baseball Museum is trying to do. We need to build a network, a community-wide network of folks who are celebrating this history. Here in Kansas City last year, just last year, we renamed the minor league team, formerly the Kansas City T-Bones. And we rebranded them and renamed them as Kansas City Monarchs. And in their inaugural season in the American Association, they won the World Series. They won the championship which I told, I told the uh, ownership group when we cut this deal to name them the Monarchs, said, now look, if you're going to be named the Monarchs, you've got to win. You can't be <laughs> named the Monarchs and lose. Now, I'm taking my name back. <laughs> but it's really important, uh, and like I say, particularly important to us at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum that we get as many communities celebrating the heritage of our sport as we particularly can. And, and you just never know when additional information is going to be unearthed, when there's a possibility of memorabilia being unearthed. So the more we can mobilize these communities into examining their Black baseball history, it's a win for all of us, but it's something that, are, again, gets me excited, and, and I love it, man. I can't wait to join you guys down in Dallas this year uh, to talk more baseball history and you know, uh, Victor says he's going to take me out to play golf. And so that already <laughs> got me juiced and excited. And so, although he ain't seen my golf game, it is terrible. <laughs> hey, well, uh, I'll let you know. Bob, thank you so much for, for giving your time. He's Bob Kendrick, the president of Negro League Baseball Museum. It has been incredible to talk to you. And like you said, we are looking forward to having you down here in Frisco to help educate us and, and spread the, the wonderful word of the Negro Leagues. Man, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much. Look forward to seeing you guys soon. Bob Kendrick, wow, a pleasure to have him on and so amazing to hear his stories. And we are so excited to have him here at Riders Field in Frisco on Juneteenth. Tickets for that game, all Dallas Black Giants games on June 19th, August 14th, and September 7th, and every Riders game throughout the 2022 season are now on sale. You can get those tickets at ridersbaseball.com. That's going to wrap things up for this episode of Riders Report, the podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts so you can get notified about the newest episode both during this offseason and, of course, we reach our opening day on April 8th, coming up very soon. This is Zach Bigley, the broadcaster for the Rough Riders, signing off. We hope to catch you in the next episode of Riders Report, the podcast. Go Riders! <laughs>